really when we say cult, we're just trying to describe coercive control. Mm. So I always say if it's an individual, we call it abuse. And if it's a group, we call it a cult. Welcome back to Dark House. I'm Alyssa Fiorentino. And I'm Hadley Mendelson. We're your hosts. If you're new here, in each episode, we dig into the backstory of a house that is allegedly haunted or notorious for some reason or another. We'll talk about who lived there, who died there, and all the events that led to its eventual infamy. You are currently listening to part two of our discussion of the infamous 1993 Waco siege. Today's episode is also the final episode of season three. Which is too sad for me to even think about right now, but the bright side is we're ending on a high note. So true. Last week, we went over as much as we possibly could about New Mount Carmel Center in Waco, Texas, which had been home to a religious cult known as the Branch Davidians and their leader, self-proclaimed prophet David Koresh. We talked about how the group started and all of its many tumultuous phases and leaders prior to Koresh taking over in the mid-80s. And we, of course, touched on the tragic events of 1993, focusing on how the construction and design of the compound actually played into the disastrous results of the standoff and siege. But even though we were able to cover all that ground in last week's episode, we were still left with a lot of questions. Yep. And personally, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out what strategies David Crush used to seduce slash manipulate so many seemingly well-adjusted and successful adults into joining his group, especially after hearing about the living conditions. Right. And worse, I always think about this with stories like this one, but how did so many adults justify bearing witness to sexual assault and the abuse of children without doing anything to stop it? I need to understand the psychology behind this stuff more because I know it's more complicated than the way that I just summarized it. Mm -hmm. And as we discussed last week, both groups involved in this conflict were vilified, but it's not as simple as this side was right and that side was wrong. It's really gray. And because gray areas can be so difficult to navigate, I wanted to speak with someone who could help us understand the extreme levels of coercive control and pressure that both sides were under. Yeah, definitely. So joining us today is author and cult scholar Daniela Mestinek-Young. In her memoir, Uncultured, Daniela compares her experience growing up in the Children of God cult with her experience as a female serving in the U.S. Army. And in addition to being a cult survivor and an Army veteran, Daniela has a master's in organizational psychology, so she's essentially the perfect person for us to speak to for this episode. Yeah, the fact that she can resonate with and also empathize with every group represented is going to lend itself to such meaningful insight into the case and cases like it. I feel really lucky that we get to hear and share her perspective. Me too. Before we get started, I do want to give everyone listening a heads up that today's discussion will include mentions of sexual assault child abuse, and other acts of violence. So please listen with caution. With that said, let's go talk to Daniela. Let's do it. Hi, Daniela. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm having a bit of like a fangirl moment. And I think I said this in an email to you, but like I really can't think of somebody who would be a better fit to talk about this subject. So we're really excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much. I was really excited when you reached out too. Because I was like, yes, someone wants to talk about cults that are not just my cult. Always. (laughs) Well, speaking of your cult, before we dig into questions about Waco, I did want to talk to you about your experiences, starting with the Children of God cult that you were born and raised in. So I was wondering if you could give our listeners a brief description 
of the cult? Yes. So the Children of God cult was started in 1968. And this is, by the way, we see cults pop up during times of social turmoil, right? So during the late 60s, early 70s, everything's confusing. We're changing systems. We're pulling things down. People really want clarity and up pop these gurus. Mm. And so our, you know, quote unquote, prophet David Burke finds his moment preaching to hippies on the beaches of California. This, you know, turns into the children of God, which is 10,000 people that are completely enthralled to this man. They completely believe that he's the prophet of God. They've spread out all across the world in the 70s when things started. You know, we have Jonestown, you have the Manson murders, you have things start really heating up for groups called cults in America. Mm. So we all went abroad. My grandfather was the one that joined the children of God along with his young girlfriend, Margarita, and her mother was so happy that her kind of a bit troubled teenage daughter had found this group of, you know, Jesus people that she wanted to go change the world with, that she actually donated a house. So nearby the like famous Texas Soul Clinic where the Children of God was founded, the leader lived off in his fancy private house that my great-grandmother had donated. Wow. And then my mom was born and raised in the cult, ended up getting impregnated with me at 14, because in the meantime, between you know starting off as faith, love, Jesus, and we're going to win the world before the end of days, it turned into the sex cult, and it turned into religious prostitution, and eventually all of these ideas about pedophilia for God. Hmm. And the way I describe it is pretty much exactly evangelical, purity, high-control culture. He just flipped the control of sex. Hmm. And he called it free love. I call it forced polyamory. Hmm. So that originated with the guru, David Berg, being predatory from the beginning, right? Definitely from the beginning. And this is something that we see with a lot of these cult leaders, right? Is they all have these predatory instincts from way beforehand. They try a few things to get followers, usually have a few failures and eventually hit their success with their group. So my story is I was, you know, born and raised in the in the dead center of this thing. And I was just, I was just never into it. I think I was just born like a very critical atheist. I just happened to be born amongst these, you know, deep religious fundamentalists. Hmm. And I actually had this moment on 9-11, which was the first time I'm seeing live news on television in my life. I'm 14 years old. We've just come to America, which we refer to as Babylon the whore, hmm. you know, the evil place that we had to flee And I'm seeing, you know, the towers are coming down. I'm seeing all of this just horror happening. And I heard the words religious extremism for the first time as they were talking about the terrorists. And I just had one of those moments, you know, now I call it the crack in the brainwashing. But it was just like, wait, are are we religious extremists? You know, are we the, the bad guys? Wow. So for me, I end up getting out of this cult when I'm 15 and coming to the U.S., And I put myself through school and I end up commissioning into the U.S. Army as an intelligence officer, which is very interesting as to why I joined, because at the time I had so many reasons that had nothing to do with reality. And now looking back, I just 
I think I joined the military for all the reasons my grandfather joined a cult, Mm. which was I was looking for community and I was looking for purpose. You know, I spent six years feeling very alone and like I was from a different planet and the military is just going to hand you all of that community and purpose and mission. And, you know, all you have to do is give them a few years of your life. And so I go into the military, but not like just the military. I also go into intelligence. And so I end up at the 101st Airborne Division, so Band of Brothers Division, and I deploy to Afghanistan twice, and I am studying terrorist groups Hmm. the whole time, right? And so for me, it was always these parallels, right? And so my book, Uncultured, just starts off with me at basic training, holding this 50-pound duffel bag over my head and having the thought oh, I just joined another cult, Mm. you know? And what's interesting is I say that wasn't necessarily like a bad thing for me. That was just like, oh, I'm going to be good at this. I know how to do no privacy. I know how to do hard labor. I know how to to just get with the program and not ask questions, you know, all of these things Mm. from growing up in this high control environment as a child. You actually see the same notes of this in Prince Harry's book. Like, oh, wow. A lot of people from high demand religions or high demand childhoods will do very well in the military because it gives us that structure. But of course, I was noticing all the parallels, right? Like we are isolated, we're being indoctrinated, they are breaking us down. It was, to me, it was just fascinating to watch as this sort of budding behavioral scientist that I eventually became. But then you know, to me, a lot of the really shocking parallels was the situation for women, because mm. of course I wasn't just any soldier, I was a woman soldier. And this was under the combat ban, mm. which made it very much more, in my opinion, dangerous for women. When you have a population program to violence that's being told that 10% of us aren't as good as you, yeah. it, you know, really ends up going poorly But also the other parallel was this attitude of like, it happens to all of us, but we don't talk about it. Mm, And if we do, you know, we were told we signed up to be here. And so I wrote Uncultured really to show the parallels. You know, when I started talking about my stories, people would say, oh, well, the, the sex call is obviously evil, but the U.S. Army, that's a wonderful organization. Mm. And, you know, it's not that simple, right? It's just really is not. And so I really wanted to parallel the two experiences of being in two high control total organizations and the things that I saw. And then since writing the book, I've also completed a a master's degree at Harvard in organizational psychology. So these days I say I'm a scholar of cults, extreme groups, and extremely bad leaders. (laughs) Wow. You are very good at giving that summary. It was very informative. I have a quick question about how you were exposed to the military initially. Was it kind of a recruitment process or was there a light bulb that went off when you were seeing the towers fall that you decided you wanted to go fight for the U.S.? Or like, how did that unfold? Uh, I mean, a little bit of all of the above. I definitely had this moment of being like, oh, I'm an American and America's under attack. You know, and I had very much grown up under the shadow of Waco and this stuff is what happens, you know, so, so many confusing feelings about that, even as a young child. When I left the cult, you know, with nothing, literally spent three weeks in America with zero dollars before I got my first paycheck, you know, I think 
many of us had the, oh, the military is your option, right? The military is a social elevator. Mm -hmm. And I did get heavily recruited. I almost joined the Marines Mm. after high school, but actually had a counselor really be like, put me on the track for college. And then in college, like many of us, I got into a somewhat toxic relationship. And actually cult scholars will call, you know, abusive relationships one-one cults. Mm-hmm. Really, when we say cult, we're just trying to describe coercive control. Yeah. So I always say if it's an individual, we call it abuse. And if it's a group, we call it a cult. And then I sort of felt a little cornered and followed him into the military. So that's a that's an interesting part of the story. Actually, the hardest part for me to tell yeah. was like why I did this to myself. Mm. But I think a lot of people can relate to like coming away from a toxic childhood, but then getting into more of these same patterns of relationships. For sure. And that internal dialogue too of kind of internalized victim blaming that you fall into without really realizing it's really hard to undo. And knowing that the step in between children of God and the military was just school. It wasn't like you were receiving any type of therapy or anything to process what you had grown up in. But speaking of parallels, I noticed a lot of similarities, differences too, between Children of God and the Branch Davidians. So I wanted to make sure that we kind of point out a few of those for our listeners. For example, I think a really key one is this apocalyptic messaging that the end time is coming. But I think it's interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, when the Waco situation happened, you guys were taught that, you know, the Branch Davidians and Koresh were bad. Right. Yes. I mean, I know you are questioning what you are being told, but how did none of the adults put two and two together that they had kind of the same messaging about end time? So partially it was isolation, right? Like the adults just were not watching the news either. They were not reading newspapers either. Mm. We only read the words that were published by David Byrd. That was actually the commune I was at was the one that published the literature. That was where I grew up as a child. And that was the only thing we were allowed to read. So we were so much more closed off than even most like fundamentalist Christians. Mm. Probably exactly as closed off as the Branch Davidians. Right. You mentioned how, you know, David Berg sort of flipped that on a dime, the idea of sexuality. And they were quite open, I would say, about sexualizing children, whereas the Branch Davidians were open, and, but only within their community. So that struck me as the biggest difference. It's that, you know, people still question whether they were just a nice little group of religious people mm. and it was all government overreach. And it's like, no, David Bur- or David Koresh was the doing <laughs> terrible things to children. Mm-hmm. And everyone in the group knew about it. They just were smart enough to not put it on their literature and publicly hand it out all over the world, Mm. which is what the Children of God did, right? So the Children of God got known as the sex cult very early. And in fact, they rebranded, you know, the Children of God rebranded very successfully in the 80s. They were known as the sex cult. And in the 90s, they performed twice at the George H.W. Bush White House. Incredibly wild. Oh my God. And even what you say about the Davids, right? So very significant. Ours was already named David, but David Koresh changed his name to David. Right. And what's significant about King David is he was a terrible person. Right. (laughs) He raped, he murdered, he pillaged, he did all of the bad things. And then he would repent to God and God would forgive him. 
And so the David analogy has been a very useful thing for people who want to be coercive leaders because they can just be like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but neither was King David. The David of it all blows my mind because I, so Hadley knows this is my whole personality this year, but I read the Bible for the first time preparing for this episode. (laughs) It really is. I listened to an audio version and it was the New Living Translation because I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to be able to get through King James Version. It's just so hard to wrap my mind around, even just when you pointed out the fact that the adults and the children of God were not reading or listening to the news. That's such a huge, huge detail that if you're not really ingrained in it, you aren't going to think of that. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I mean, uh, a huge part of writing Uncultured was, you know, the the co-writers and editors being like, but how did you know this? Or how didn't you know this? Right. You know, and just like trying to explain. So very interestingly, like I didn't watch almost any news but we knew all about Waco and we knew all about the Oklahoma City bombing two years later in response to Waco, right? So they made sure that we knew this stuff. Actually, my chapter three, it was published in Rolling Stone magazine, if any listeners want to go check it out. And it is the chapter where we as young children are being sort of programmed in the middle of the night to do these persecution drills. Mm. And it it is exactly the time frame that Waco is happening. And so we were told, you know, we are not a cult. Of course, every cult has their mm-hmm. their list of reasons as for why they're not a cult, but they're a cult, right? Mm-hmm. And so for us, it was yeah. David Koresh is evil because he thinks he's Jesus. And clearly he's not Jesus. Therefore, that's a cult. David Burke doesn't think he's Jesus. He's the prophet. <laughs> so we are not a cult. Mm-hmm. However, We want you to be really, really afraid of the United States and the government and what they do to cults, right? Mm. So, like, I have known every gory detail of what happened at Waco since I was six years old. And actually, the first time I went to Waco, I was 14. We were being driven around the U.S. to raise money for the cult. And I just just pictured an apocalyptic landscape. And I was so shocked Mm. to see this major city because that was all that I knew about that outside world. And something for you, Alyssa, about the King James Version, it's very significant that almost all Christian cults and high-demand religions only want people to read the King James Version. And it's basically for the exact same reason the Catholic Church didn't want the Bible translated out of Latin. It is that it is in archaic Old English. It is hard to understand. Mm -hmm. And therefore, anyone that sets himself up as the expert is going to be able to control what people think of the Bible. Yeah, like the entire interpretation is their word. Yeah, like when you said this was your first time reading the Bible, you know, it was like, I immediately, I'm like, I read the Bible four times before I was 12. Right. But it wasn't until I was in college and I was a literature major. And of course, we all, all Western literary tradition classes start with like reading Genesis and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was in different translation and it was like, oh, this is a whole new version of this, you know, plus all the explanations of like what really happened. Mm -hmm. And that for me was this moment of realizing like, oh, I have been absolutely locked into one person's interpretation of this book, even though I have read it for myself since I was born. So true. Okay. So how they were defining Waco as a cult was, okay, David Crush thinks he's Jesus, but something Hadley and I talk about a lot is it's almost impossible to define a cult, but how do you define them? Or what are some specific telltale signs that a group or an organization is a cult? So 
you know, Waco's a very, or the Branch Davidians are very interesting because like that sort of sect had even been going on since the late 30s or early Mm. 40s, right? So at what point did it become a cult? Right. Right. And one of the things I think is that we as a society, especially with religious freedom, so, you know, fundamentally built into the American psyche, is that we only are willing to call a group a cult when like seriously bad things have happened. Mm. And that usually means like dead bodies or just like really, really bad public sex stuff. Right. Think about Nexium. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we're willing to call that one a cult. I'm thinking about like Greek life. (laughs) Exactly. Um, (laughs) So one of my basic things and I, you know, I'm working on this next book called The Culting of America. And I have built out this spectrum. I call it the cultiness spectrum because it's really just not a binary question. Mm -hmm. Like, Like I said about Branch Davidians, right? Like when did they become a cult? There's qualities of a group, but there's also this part of it that's a journey. You know, so I think there's almost no easy way to answer it. And one of the things when I put up these 10 things that if you have all 10 of these things, you're a cult. People are like, well, uh, my organization has a lot of those. (laughs) And my answer is yes, exactly. And looking at that is where you're going to find these toxic things before, you know, like, Right. The Branch Davidians were a cult and were hurting adults and children long before it all blew up in 1993. And one of the things, even as a child survivor of these groups, is the knowledge that as soon as you define a cult, as soon as anyone defines a cult, cultic groups are going to take those and they're going to use that to like reverse program their members about how they're not a cult. Mm. You know, so when I at 15, <laughs> dropped into high school, couldn't explain anything to you about the world or government or anything, but I could talk all about what made a cult. Right. Because we had been so heavily programmed to believe that we weren't one. Well, okay. On that note, members of a cult don't have to be living together for the group to be recognized as, you know, what we would call a cult. But I wanted to talk to you about how that communal living setting can change the power dynamics within a group. Yeah. So you know, first of all, is the isolation. I tend to think that one of the reasons people will focus so heavily, these leaders, on getting everyone together in these communal settings is because where are you going to do that? You have to do that in a more isolated situation. You can't just have 150 people living on a street in America. Mm -hmm. So, and that isolation, that geographic isolation is really, really, really important to the group think. And, you know, we have, there's a definition of a type of organization called a total institution where you live and work away from the rest of the world and you have some sort of formal overlay. Yeah, There's all kinds of organizations that have these. And one of the things I think is anytime you have a large group of people removed from the rest of the population you have this drive towards stronger group norms, stronger group cohesion. Cult scholar Alexandra Stern talks about this a lot. And I say, you know, this is why the military exercises before you go to war are out in the middle of the desert or the middle of the swamp. You know, like they are taking you away to put you through something specific. 
It is isolation and it is group bonding because it is Mm. so, so hard to be different from the group when that group is all that you have. That's really interesting in the context of the David Koresh era of the Branch Davidians because they also, for a period of time, had these two houses in California. So that would obviously put them in a larger community setting. And he did lose some followers then. And it's easier to leave, you know? Yeah, yeah. This was said about by a scholar who studied the People's Temple, so the Jonestown Massacre, before and after. And it was, you know, when you take people to a removed, faraway location, there's a whole bunch of extra logistics to leaving. Even if you actively want to leave, it's not as easy as just, driving back to your parents' house. You actually have to figure out Mm -hmm. how to leave. This really played in the children of God's favor as well, because we were all dispersed around the world. And so it was easier to just get over your doubts and stay there. And the expert on the People's Temple, he was like, absolutely no way this could have happened if they had stayed in San Francisco. I was thinking that too, when you said that you were driving through Waco, that that sounded like something risky for the leadership there to expose you to the world. I mean, you said you had a wake up moment there too. Yes. And it was, it was really significant for me in the timeline of my story. And I think this is really what blew up the children of God was the internet and the information era. Mm -hmm. But basically for me, it went, you know, we were, I was growing up in Brazil where every rich person's house has a super high wall around it. Mm -hmm. So living on a commune with a bunch of people doesn't seem that different, doesn't stand out as much. As soon as I got to America, that was the most shocking thing about me was you could just walk up to a house and (laughs) ring the doorbell. So the literal walls coming down and literally we had to be more normal because people could see us. Yeah. Okay. On the note of making things easier to leave and the question of, you know, when did the Branch Davidian sect become a cult? Their first settlement was the self-sufficient farming community, and they even had their own currency. It's a really stark contrast from what was happening at Mount Carmel in 1993, where there's no electricity, barely any running water, not great living conditions at all. Meanwhile, in the 40s, the original Mount Carmel Center had plumbing and electricity and telephones and things like that. So I started to wonder who is more sinister Victor Hatev, who gave his community everything. So what reason would they have to leave versus David Koresh, who gave them nothing sort of as a test of their faith? Yeah. You know, I think it was always going to be like a negative group, Mm -hmm. but there was a definite tipping point. You know, I just think that anytime you're having this level of isolation and this level of you know what you just talked about, right? They're in isolation from the rest of the world, but they have this formal overlay setting, right? They have their own money. They have everything they need. You know, it was also appropriate for the time period. Like a lot of people were doing that, but the isolation, the giving you everything, and then the one leader at the top, like that to me was just always red flags. Now with David Koresh, you know, it was definitely... Like it got a lot more sinister and what you were talking about with no electricity, right? So cult leaders, they love to tell you you're free to leave anytime, mm-hmm. which I say is it's not actually an invitation. It's a threat, right? It's reminding mm-hmm. you of this dichotomy. You accept everything I say or you go. And they're not afraid of that because they know how to keep you. 
And in order to do that, they need to keep you isolated, tired, busy, poor, skinny, and pregnant. And Mm. we can think of David Koresh and all of those things apply. And cults want your labor. So part of it, I think, was just intentional, just to create labor, just to keep you busy, just to not give you time to question and to keep you very, very tired. I wonder if the intention of, you know, how they had that excavation pit that the authorities were saying, oh, they were going to use this as like an underground tunnel. People actually, after the fact, thought that David Koresh survived the fire and had escaped through the bus. But now I'm wondering, was it just a whole ploy for David Koresh to keep the men tired and busy? I think so. And also there's research that shows us that once you do the first irrational task, for a group, you are so much less likely to balk at doing a follow-on irrational task. Mm. And this is one of the things I talk about when you go to military basic training. The first thing they have you do is hold 50 pounds above your head for two or three hours while you're getting yelled at. And it's important because it's impossible. Like you can't do it. You're going to drop it. You're going to pick it up. You're going to feel like a failure, but it's also irrational. Yeah. And, you know, the military is famous for this, right? Like move these rocks from here to there. And I absolutely think that that is part of it. It's to bond you to the group. And then the other thing I think that the the really harrowing living conditions do is they further commit you because it's emphasizing the difference. It's emphasizing the us and the them. And it's emphasizing self-sacrifice. Like we believe so much in this mission that we are willing to self-sacrifice. Right. And of course, persecution comes into that, too, because the Bible tells you you are going to be persecuted. So therefore, being persecuted is a sign that you're right. So there's all these little things that cult leaders bring in, in my opinion, quite intentionally to keep these people under their control. Mm. So just like with the Davidians and the Branch Davidians, when David Berg, the founder of Children of God, died, his wife, Karen Zerby, she took over as the leader of the group. Can you tell us a little more about the role that women play in extreme groups, whether they have leadership roles or they are the actual guru themselves? Yes. So I have this theory called the skinny white woman. And it is essentially every time, let's say focus on America. So American cult kind of blows up. We see next to the leader, this skinny white woman, sometimes many, but who's Mm -hmm. like, overly dedicated to the leader. And I spent many, many years thinking about this. So we think of Alison Mack of Nexium mm-hmm. and Jelaine mm-hmm. Maxwell and Karen Zerby. In my opinion, it is her presence, right? The stereotype of the skinny white woman who is perfect, who is calm, who is controlled, right? The, the skinniness. It's like you are this mm-hmm. representation to the outside world of the perfection of the group. And you also are whitewashing the leader's sins, right? The pure lily white woman. Mm-hmm. You know, so I say like G. Lane Maxwell ex- is exactly who you want next to you when you are sex trafficking children. And so I think, you know, almost always we see that cults in this cultic structure are very closely tied to the patriarchy. And, you know, the patriarchy mm-hmm. is all about control. So it makes sense. I think that when women are the leaders, they often operate as their own skinny white woman. 
And I'm going to talk about Elizabeth Holmes Mm. of Theranos for that one, right? There were so many red flags. She was in no way qualified to be leading the startup that she was leading, but she was specifically picked in the first place by the first venture capitalist because she was so young and pretty and well-spoken. Yeah. And so I think we see the skinny white woman in regular organizations. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up corporate America. (laughs) Yeah, like how can the military be so toxic if Captain Daniela Mestinek was so successful? Mm -hmm. So like, I think I've been used in this way in the past, right, by organizations. I'm determined not to allow it anymore. Mm. But yeah, so I think women in general and specifically in the context of white supremacy, we have been taught that white women are a civilizing force. Mm -hmm. And so how could you be doing something so heinous if you have this woman as your front person? And what does she have at stake in it? Just the also the power and the control? Yeah, it's the, you know, you're, you are being let into the leadership. You mm-hmm. are the, like, right next to the nexus of control. And, you know, who says it very well is Sarah Edmondson, who was one of the whistleblowers of Nexium. And she said, you know, she describes these, like, six women, including herself, that mm-hmm. were, like, right around Keith Raniere. And she's like, we thought we were the groundbreaking leaders of his organization. But he just saw us as the most dedicated followers of his cult, right? So they are being promised leadership. And I think this analogy works very well for women in the military because you are being promised leadership. You know, I was making history for women, Mm -hmm. but you are having to internalize so much misogyny Mm -hmm. and accept so many things of the toxic group structure that, you know, in my case, it was killing my soul, right? So like, it's not a good trade-off in any way, but they are programmed enough to think that they are part of the power structure. Mm -hmm. This is a bit of a jump into the topic of sexual assault, but in the case with Waco, the women were taught that it was an honor to be chosen to be a wife of David. And part of what led to them even you know, getting on the FBI and then the ATF's radar, CPS, was this custody case over a girl. Her name was Kiri Jewell. She was sexually assaulted by David Koresh when she was 10 years old. And her mom knew about it, but was okay with it because, again, the belief was that this was an honor to be in the house of David. I don't even know if I have a question here. It's more just a thought of just looking at the ways in which women are influenced within these groups? So one of the things I think, like when we call something a cult, right, we immediately are sort of dehumanizing all of the people in it, Mm -hmm. in the way we think about it. And so we don't often think as much about like the adults that chose to join, but they are also under complete coercive control, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's never right at the beginning, right? Like David Berg was not handing out flyers saying, please let me molest your children. You know, this was happening within the first decade where he had everyone under coercive control. And you know, what you described, right, with Carrie Jewell, like that was my mother. So in 1993, this man went on Larry King Live and admitted that, you know, he had been, quote, forced to have sex with this 10-year-old girl who was the daughter of the leaders. And that girl was my mom. Mm -hmm. And she's sitting there 10 years later, watching it happen, knowing that it happened to her, 
but still thinking, you see how they lie about it? You see, like, it wasn't Mm -hmm. rape. It was love. Mm -hmm. You know, she had also like been so indoctrinated exactly in that way that you were saying. For my mom, it took her nearly 40 years to see it. But the other thing I would say is, you know, I write quite a bit about the sexual abuse that happened to me in Uncultured. And until I was deconstructing everything to write the book, I always thought if I had been brave enough to tell my parents, they would have stopped it. Until my co-writer looked at me and said, do you actually think that? Right. Mm. When I actually think about it, of course not. They couldn't. They didn't have the power to stop it. The last thing I would say is I have this theory called the sacred assumption. And in order to be in the group, you have to transform your worldview to the sacred assumption. So in Children of God, the sacred assumption was this random dude, David Berg, was the prophet of God, right? In uh, the Branch Davidians, David Koresh was the Messiah reincarnated. In Nexium, Keith Ranieri was the smartest man alive and his program worked. And as long as you are under that sacred assumption, you can justify anything. And as soon as this is, I think, is the only way to get people out of cults, and it's very hard to engineer, but as soon as you can crack that brainwashing, Mm -hmm. it's like literally that sacred assumption. You will not be able to deconstruct the children of God until you realize he wasn't God's prophet. It was all a con all along. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, keeps people very, very strongly in place supporting the systems. When you were talking about the different interpretation of rape versus love (laughs) making, I guess, people were interpreting it as, it's really wild to me how much all this boils down to linguistics and how much of the coercive control was really about language. And like you were saying, too, if you have that sacred assumption, then no matter what happens, as long as you describe it a certain way, people will think that it's all right. Yes. You know, so extreme version of this in my book, Uncultured, which is where my mom, you know, from the age of 12 years old is being sent to the beds of these uncles, Mm -hmm. right? And, And actually younger, right? But very openly from the age of 12, and we did not have the word rape in the children of God, right? Just just didn't exist. We had literature that programmed us to give ourselves to our attackers in order to have the opportunity to witness to them yeah. while they were violating us, right? Mm-hmm. When my mother was 17, she was on a trip outside of the commune and she was attacked. The men with her were tied up and she was very, very violently assaulted. And what the children of God did with this, absolutely language, right? Is they said, so Mm. you see, that's rape. That's sexual assault. What we do is love. And very validly in the mind of this 17-year-old girl, Mm. that was horrific. And the things that you've been sent to do were much more loving before that. Right. And I think, you know, the the journey that she's been on having to deliver herself to the uncles all of those nights, she sees now as much worse than that single like violent event that happened. And I think we see this all through our society. Right. I mean, we definitely have 
any version of purity culture that people are in mm-hmm. where they are programmed to keep themselves pure. And then once they are married, they are to give themselves over no matter what. But I also think we have that in yeah. regular society, right? Where consent culture is so confusing and there's so much pressure put on young girls to have sex that so many of us have had those situations where we are having sex because either we literally don't know we can say no, or we don't know what will happen if we say no. So it's easier to just submit, which, you know, this was something, again, that I was actively programmed to in the cult, but I, I see elements of that programming in so many ways in our society. Right. And then bring it into the judicial system. And then it's like, that's not set up at all to navigate these cases where the word consent is not clearly defined to anybody. And this was even the case for me with my military assault was like, I had gone into the room with him. I had taken off my own boots and I Mm -hmm. knew that was where they would stop. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You took them off yourself. So whatever came afterwards, you wanted. And I think just in general, too, something I was thinking about of, you know, all of these adults who are witnessing physical and sexual abuse going on, not really doing anything to stop it. But then the circumstances of the deaths in the Waco conflict, it's this weird struggle of trying to grapple with understanding that they were doing things wrong and they were actually breaking several laws, but also feeling empathy for a majority of them. Is that something that you've kind of confronted to with with your group and even just your relationship with your mom? Yeah, you know, I think there is a very important lack of empathy when we call something a cult. And I, like, I have had to learn to say I was born and raised in the children of God, or I was a third generation cult member. That means me and my mother were born in. Otherwise, people immediately don't have any sympathy for me. Mm. As soon as you say cult member, you are not a human. I think I encounter it all the time because people will say to me, oh, you don't seem like a cult survivor. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, how many do you know? You right. know, like what you're trying to say is you're surprised at how personable and human I am and not an automaton. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's like what you're talking about is shown so well in the Waco documentary where this mother who survived, she's saying, you know, they were trying to get us to send our kids out obviously to safety, but to us, that was the Antichrist. That was hell. Those, you know, it was better for our kids to die with us than what they were asking us to do. It's almost, you know, similar to some of the situations we saw in Afghanistan, where it's like, you know, these people don't want to support this terrorist group, but like, they are stuck here. And I found something that was really hard for the American soldiers was sympathizing with the Afghan citizens and even Mm -hmm. just realizing like they don't want their children to die as much as you back home don't want your child to die. Mm -hmm. But it is so much more common here, Mm -hmm. right? And to them in some ways, like we are the reason that this is happening to them. And I think so much of that psychology was worked in in Waco, you know, David Koresh said, I'm the Messiah, they're coming to persecute me. And on the day when the raid started, you know, he declared to his people, it is time, it is coming. You know, I, I, I absolutely have sympathy for 
the people that joined cults, even though they did me a lot of harm, because I think it's very understandable how people get there. And then once you're under coercive control, you really don't have a choice. At this point, you are very much locked into whatever they say is going to happen. Well, hearing you say that they had broken a lot of laws, we're still talking about the U.S. government's laws, which is something that we're kind of buying into in our own indoctrination of that as the ultimate moral code. That helps me have more empathy for these people, too, that those laws aren't their laws, you know? That's a good segue, though, because I was going to bring up the fact there's a really good book that came out this year. It's just called Waco. It's by author Jeff Gwynn. And he does a really good job, just the full scope from the history of the sect to both sides of the conflict. And I found myself having empathy or feeling sympathy for a lot of the agents on the ATF side of things, because a lot of them had a feeling going into it like, "Mm, we lost our element of surprise. We shouldn't be going in. But their job was just to do the order, the commands that you're told. And so I wanted to ask you, so many of the agents that were there on February 28th were ex-military or otherwise former police officers or former border control. So I was wondering how you think that their military background would have played into or influenced their thought process? Yeah, I thought a lot about that question when I saw it because I was like, ooh, it's almost one cult going against another cult in some ways, right? With just the the way you've been programmed, the way you've been taught, the way you're not going to question, right? Because they were all questioning it, but you're not allowed to question. And it's dangerous to question in a military or pseudo-military operation. You know, so on the one side, I'm like, well, military actually has better ROE. We are less likely to pull the trigger and we are much more careful about it than I would say any other law enforcement agency is. Mm-hmm. So there's part of me that's like, oh, of course, it's great to have military people there. However, again, you have this thing with the otherizing, right? And that's where I think the term cult, if they had never been labeled as a cult, I think there would have been a very different outcome. Mm. And Amanda Montel, who wrote the book Cultish, which you would love, Hadley, because it's all about language. She's my old coworker. We used to sit next to each other when she used to write about beauty. (laughs) Can you tell her she needs to have me on her podcast? Yes, totally. (laughs) I love her book, though. What were you going to say about it? So she talks about how like the like it's just a word, but there are actual life and death outcomes to labeling something a cult because religions mm-hmm. have protections and cults do not, right? And mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we see this in Afghanistan, right? Like absolutely none of us wanted to harm children. But if I am actively part of a raid and a 12-year-old comes running up to me, I'm going to be much more likely to think something nefarious is going on. Mm-hmm. And then there's the part about the false sense of security because of the children. Mm -hmm. You know, I write about this in Afghanistan where I'm on a mission and I notice that there's no women and children. That's the whole reason I'm on the mission. And, you know, together we put together all the signs and we're like, okay, there's a bomb in the road, right? And so this is that part of understanding that like these people are human, they love their children. So this is an indicator However, Mm. there's a missing piece when we're trying to understand Waco because they're being taught to manipulate, right? To use their children to manipulate. At least that is what I believe. And you see this in my chapter 
the one in Rolling Stone about the programming. We are taught a raid is going to come. The persecution is going to come. They are evil. They want you dead. And this is what the children need to do, right? Like we were drilled in how to walk and how to hold hands, you know, have the six-year-old carry the babies because that looks more heartbreaking on the news, you know? So I think they were absolutely using the children, right, to manipulate. The U.S. Mm -hmm. government is not going to come in here and kill children. Yeah. I also think it's interesting. You knew you were American, but you also were taught to fear them, to hate them, which is such an interesting point of view when talking about Waco because it became such a divisive moment in anti-government rhetoric, but the split was really just who was right, the cult who are citizens and in certain respects still within their rights or these agents. I mean, the charge against the surviving Branch Davidians was conspiracy to murder a federal agent, which is pretty heavy. Yeah, I mean, it's like the ultimate hero villain binary, I think, that is being utilized. Yeah, and that's a crazy thing to say. And I can only say this because I lived it. But like, Mm -hmm. it was horrible. But as horrible as it was, I was there at six years old going, well, somebody came for those children, right? Mm -hmm. Somebody cared about those children. Nobody cared about us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, yeah, it, it turned out horribly, but... I, I don't have an answer. Obviously, nobody has an answer right. to, to what happened, right? But I I don't think the answer was for the government to do nothing. Yeah. I think that's my issue with the entire Waco conflict. And it's that both sides were right in some ways and wrong in some ways. And there's really no way to make a call on a side to agree on. And you, we don't have to. That's not the point. And the point is just to learn from it. But I do think it's interesting, the part that involves children, because, you know, CPS was there. They were on it, but they didn't have the evidence. And so I'm starting to wonder, you know, how can the systems change so that if this were ever to happen again, that they could intervene before it's too late without needing the children to agree to testify because they won't, because they're taught not to. Yeah. You know, first on the part of like both sides were were right in some ways, you know, I have this quote that I've written about my experience, which is she pulled herself from the rabbit hole to find they thought their world was reality. Mm -hmm. And that is how I describe living in America, because I grew up in a cult that was obviously wrong. You just want to say about everything. But like, um, America has a lot of problems, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of the things that they said were true. And this is why cults work, right? This is why they pop up in times of social turmoil. And one of the things I say is any idea can be used to radicalize you with the right recipe. So I think the only way to protect yourself against extremism is to get comfortable living in the gray, to always understand that, Mm. like, like never have 100% certainty that you are on the right path, right? even when you think you're saving children, because that's what Pizzagate was. It was sex trafficking children is bad, which I Mm -hmm. absolutely agree with. And I saw some of my own friends from Children of God get radicalized into QAnon through that line of reasoning, right? So, but I wanted to talk about the other thing you were saying, which is like, how do we help the children? Because I think this is Mm -hmm. very much actively still a problem today 
America does not have a single law about coercive control. The only person in America you can force to be in your religion is a child. Right. Mm -hmm. Japan, for example, after their era of cults, made laws so that you cannot force a child to be in a religion. It's called harming their soul. I cannot imagine America doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have good ways to protect children that we think are growing up in coercive religions. And that's an American problem. And I think any group can become a cult, but especially when it's a religion. We are trained Mm -hmm. as an American that if someone else's religion makes you uncomfortable, you look away. Yeah. It's one of those things. Again, I am a huge, huge fan of religious freedom. However, I was sacrificed on the altar of religious freedom, Mm. you know, so it absolutely goes way too far, right? And even Waco formed themselves into, sorry, I keep saying Waco, the Branch Davidians, (laughs) formed themselves to be a church specifically to dodge taxes and help people dodge the draft, you know? Mm -hmm. Anytime you call it a religion, you immediately have so many more protections and this is the the downside. So really negative answer there because I don't know what to do. And I think these things could easily happen again. But it's good because maybe somebody listening, this could spark an idea for somebody who can start something that could lead to change. But do we have, in your experiences, do we have at least the resources for when these kids do get out, anything to help them readjust or therapy? What was your experience with that? Not even a little bit. Because I see you knitting and I'm Mm. wondering when you took that up. (laughs) Yeah, I started knitting when I was five. Oh, wow. Wow. But I do think it is a form of like stim for me and it really Mm -hmm. has actively helped me out in a lot of ways. And another thing I say for trauma survivors, it's like, if you don't know what to do, get your hands in some paint or in some plants. You know, just like Mm -hmm. start doing art or start doing some kind of gardening, something that ties you to the earth. I have like a hundred houseplants. I think that really helps me heal. But the biggest problem is that, you know, I say I didn't believe a lot of the stuff the cult told me, but I was programmed to believe that the outside world was harmful, that I wouldn't fit in, that it was us against them. Mm -hmm, And so... mm -hmm. I went into the outside world. I mean, for 10 years, I didn't tell anybody that I was not dating about my background because I was convinced that if anyone found out, they would somehow send me back, right? I would somehow be rejected from life. The majority, the majority of the 5,000 child survivors of the children of God are absolutely living closeted about their backgrounds because they truly, truly believe that they will be rejected. And this comes back to how dehumanized cult survivors are. Mm. Some groups have specific resources, like outside the areas with FLDS, the Mormon polygamists, they have some specific resources for them. We have a nonprofit called Safe Passage Foundation for mostly children of God survivors, but there really isn't good programs for people coming out trying to escape religions. Often those people are still teenagers, in which most cases the law is going to return them back to their families. So uh, well, so we have our work cut out for us in this area. Yeah. And just now, you know, psychology and sociology is starting to talk about religious abuse as its own form of abuse. And I think 
you know, this is part of why you see me on TikTok all the time, because I'm trying to help people understand that it's not just extreme groups that do this. It's all kinds of of groups that have done this, because for now, our process is usually just running super hard, being perfect, trying to put our lives together and then breaking, falling apart and trying to figure out how to heal. What has been, if you found this, the biggest misconception people have commented on your videos? What I would say the most common misconception is, is kind of what we talked about earlier, that like a cult is a binary thing. So the beginning of my journey of doing all this work and speaking out, people are like, what are you going to do? Teach people how to not be in cults? Because that scene is something so extreme. Nobody thinks of themselves mm-hmm. as somebody in a cult. And like, this is what I'm doing in my next book, The Culting of America. I'm saying like, it's not a binary question. Here's a spectrum. Here's 10 things that make you a cult. But as soon as we isolate each of these things, we can see them in other places, right? Like familial language. I say all the time, any company that calls itself a family wants to pay you less, work you more, (laughs) and expect you to put up with more bullshit than you would otherwise, right? Yeah, yeah. And so like we can see these things around us and I just don't think something has to meet all of the definitions of a cult for it to be this coercive negative experience. And actually, I'm putting this saying on a t-shirt and it just says, if it quacks like a cult. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I'll buy the t-shirt. So true, though. So, yeah, I think the parallels of a coercive group experience can be there no matter what kind of group it is. And no matter if we are socially allowed to call it a cult or not. I think as soon as you start deconstructing the power structure of a cult, you also realize that like white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, Mm -hmm. maybe America. Um, these all have very like culty elements to them. And just like Mm -hmm. I say about the military, I think we can learn so much about our groups, looking at them through the lens of the most extreme groups. Yeah. Do you want to share with everyone where they can find you on your socials and then also where they can find your book that is out uncultured? Yes. So it's Daniela Mestinek Young on TikTok and also Daniela M. Young on Twitter. But Uncultured can be bought anywhere you buy books. I also did the audio, which was one of the hardest things I've done, but the New York Times says it's pretty good. And yeah, you can also buy my fun t-shirts on my book on my website, www.uncultureyourself.com. This has been riveting. Thank you so much. I mean, your perspective is invaluable. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, as expected, that was incredibly insightful. Poignant too. Obviously, we'll never have all the answers here, but I Mm -hmm. feel like so many things clicked in my mind during that conversation. Same. A lot of snapping going on. Yeah. Like how there's an emphasis on printing the leaders' writing and teachings because that's all they want you to be reading. Right. Complete control over the information that you absorb and how you perceive the world and then interact with it. It made me think really differently about the fact that both New Mount Carmel Center and the original one, but how there was this printing press in the administration building. It did not seem so sinister, insidious Mm. when I first was doing my research, even working on the notes for the episode. And now I'm like, oh, God, the printing press. The power of the pen. It, of course, doesn't excuse the blatant wrongdoing, but it does help at least somewhat put to bed the question of how did these adults not realize what was going on, at least in the outside Mm. world? 
Yeah. Also, the whole thing about cults wanting to keep you busy and how the constant construction of these compounds was really just a way to keep their followers distracted and willing to do things for the group, no matter how irrational. I mean, part of me is like, well, duh. But also my brain was not going there throughout the research because I've never had that lived experience. I think it was also helpful, though, even just hearing from someone who grew up in a cult and Mm. so did their own parents and then later wanting out and surviving all of that and that the isolated environment is specifically designed to make it harder to leave. Designed. Isn't that creepy? I know. And almost impossible to imagine a different, better kind of life, even if that Mm. inner voice is telling you something is off. I also just want to say that it's really interesting how many celebrities were once a part of the Children of God cult. It took me a second to put that together. Yeah. There's River and Joaquin Phoenix's family, Rose McGowan's family, and then Mm -hmm. also the guy from the original Fleetwood Mac lineup. Oh, I didn't even know about Mm -hmm. that one. But to your point about being third generation, it's interesting. Waco is obviously very different from anything we've covered before, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, it's not. Yeah. The conversation around the sort of gray area where a belief system can become harmful or even traumatic Mm. during early childhood development. That came up in our episodes about the Ammons House and Amityville Horror. Yeah. Even just child welfare in general came up with Lucy Murder House and a bit with Holiday House, too. Right. And the concept of family, I feel like our show focuses on domestic life. So inherently, a lot of our conversations do touch on family structures and dynamics within regional and cultural contexts. And then, of course, larger historical frameworks. So although it's obviously different from a conventional nuclear structure, the idea of cults positioning themselves as families is just a whole other layer there. Right. We definitely hit a lot of beats this season, but Mm -hmm. on the whole, and however unintentionally, (gasps) there were a few common threads tying most of these stories together. So I'm glad we were able to go a little deeper there for this last episode. Me too. Hopefully you all enjoyed it too. And actually, in honor of this being our last episode of the season, we wanted to celebrate with a fun little sweepstake. So one lucky listener will receive a hardcover copy of Daniela's memoir, Uncultured. For the sweepstakes rules and how to enter for a chance to win, you can check the description of this episode or see the Uncultured memoir sweepstakes post that's up on our Instagram at Darkhouse Podcast now. Speaking of which, we don't have a season four update for you at this current moment, but we promise that as soon as we do, you will be the first to know. No, truly, we will be running to let you know what's next for Dark House. Sprinting. <laughs> so make sure you're following us on Instagram at Dark House Podcast. That's where we'll be making any major season four announcements. You can also follow us on our personal Instagram accounts. Mine is at Alyssa Fiorentino. And Hadley's is at Hadley Mendelssohn. They're both just our full names, so you can't miss us. And if you're on TikTok, make sure to follow us there too at Dark House Podcast for some fun bonus content. Before we officially sign off for the season, we want to give a huge, huge shout out to our producer, Jesse. She is the third leading lady of Dark House, and this show would truly not be possible without her. Jesse, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for bringing this all to life with us and for being our rock during the entire process. And of course, we also want to say thank you to all of our listeners. We feel like you're all our friends and it means the world to us to know that you're tuning in to hang out with us every week. Nothing makes us happier than reading through all your comments and DMs, hearing that you're just as excited about these houses and their stories as we are. So thank you for listening and joining our little coven. Yes, to all of that and to Echo Hadley. Seriously, thank you so much to everyone who has reached out to us to share your feedback. 
It's really so helpful to hear directly from you about your favorite parts of the show. So please keep the messages coming. Yeah. And if you haven't already, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we would be so grateful if you could take a minute and give us a review. Not only is the feedback very helpful because I'm sick of hearing just feedback from Alyssa. Just kidding. I love you. (laughs) But listener reviews go a long way when it comes to ranking on the podcast charts, which is really important for us to keep the show going. So if you love Dark House and want to hear more from us, we would really, really appreciate it. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, they just rolled out a really cool new Q&A feature, which allows you to share feedback on each individual episode. So that's really exciting because we love getting your thoughts on each episode as you listen along. Sorry, one more thank you to everyone who has shared our show, either on social or word of mouth. Sharing is another huge way to support us. So keep telling your friends. Tell your neighbors. If there's a general (laughs) office chat room at work, drop a link to your favorite episode in there. Head to that water cooler one extra time. (laughs) The more we can spread the dark house gospel, hopefully the more stories we get to tell. So clearly we're avoiding signing off because we don't want to. Oh, wait. Hadley, did you have a favorite house this season? Did I have a favorite house? Or a favorite like episode? To work on. Every episode was my favorite for a different reason. I really loved learning about Texas history. That was one of my favorites Mm -hmm. to research. But I also really enjoyed researching Elizabeth Short and her life and learning Mm -hmm. about her personality. But they're all great. I don't know. You? I hear you on like having favorites. I can tell you, I actually, I mean, Amityville was definitely my least favorite because (sighs) <sighs> a couple of reasons. Number one, I hated everybody by the end. Right, not right, everybody, right. obviously not the Cromartis. No, but the villains. Just like a lot of li- liars. And it was hard to sift through the sources there and decide who I felt was credible enough to share with the class. Right. We have trust issues now. But I was really happy to have an opportunity to like use our platform to kind of set the record straight about Amityville because I think they have gotten the short end of the stick. Right. That's how I felt with Black Dahlia. Totally. Yeah. And then just speaking of using our platform, I really am proud of the Lucy Murder House episode, I just feel like Alan's story really deserved to be told. Right. And it hadn't really been presented in like mainstream media. I don't yeah. feel like Are as we much. mainstream media? Are we? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said mainstream media. I don't feel comfortable talking about ourselves. I don't think we're mainstream yet. But if you share with enough people, <laughs> then we'll be mainstream. Yeah, then we'll be mainstream. And it's wild because every season I feel like I have a new favorite episode and I know right now that we're putting a wrap on all of season three. I'm ready for my new favorite episodes because there's still so many houses that I want to explore and I hope we get to. You know, when I read High Hopes by Gerard Sullivan, the prosecutor on the DeFeo murder trial, Mm -hmm. it gets to the end. Basically, it was like this moment where he's feeling kind of empty because he had been so embedded in working on this case for however long and it made me cry because I think it just resonated, resonated with, yeah, with how we get with each house as we're doing research. And now with the season being just the, out yeah. and capped off, I'm like, oh, am I empty inside? Like, what are we? <laughs> I sure am. So at least now you're in what? good empty company. <laughs> oh, thank you to everybody who has sent us recommendations for houses to look into. We've got a running list going. We are going to yeah. take the next few weeks to really look. Who knew there were so many, so many Well, we knew. We always knew. That was kind of why we started the show. We were like, this thing will never end. Endless. So we're going to take a look at those, but keep them coming. We keep this list going on a rolling basis. And then if you want to send us your personal stories, you never have to ask if it's okay. You can always send those to us. We love reading them. And we love a voice recording. So if you want to send a voice memo because it's easier than typing, please. We know we need to get another listener ghost story episode on the queue. We will work on that. 
And I guess all that's left to say is that we hope you have a wonderful holiday season. And a happy new year. And a happy And don't let the bed bugs bite. And don't look under the bed. (laughs) And lock your doors. (sighs) We better go. Okay. 